Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is pushing technology manufacturers to make their products secure by design, shifting the responsibility for securing products to manufacturers instead of their customers. CISA released its initial guidance on secure by design principles back in April and followed up with an update in October. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with CISA's senior technical advisor, Jack Cable. We released this initial guidance back in April of this year. Got a lot of really great feedback. Uh, one of the kind of main focuses in that document was around the three principles we laid out for Secure by Design that we urge every technology manufacturer to adhere to um, in order to help uh, fulfill the, the National Cybersecurity Strategy's goal. Those are one that manufacturers really need to be taking ownership of customer security outcomes. It's not enough to just ship a product and be done with it. Rather, they need to really view customer security as an extension of their own. Second, they need to lead with radical transparency and accountability, talking openly about what does and doesn't work when they're building their products in a secure by design manner. And third, uh, tech manufacturers really need to view this as a business decision and a business process and have company leadership, um, including the CEO, really make Secure by Design a top priority. So for the updated version of the document, we took those three principles and really expanded on them. And this was based on feedback we received from hundreds of people across the, the technology manufacturers, across their customers, uh, security researchers, academics, nonprofits. Uh, we really did lots of work to gather feedback. We even held a session at uh, DEF CON earlier this year where we gave hackers a version of the draft revised document before we published it, gave them um, actual red pens and let them mark up our document, got some really great feedback through there. So, so we received feedback from a, a ton of sources and wanted to incorporate that into this document so that the output of that is um, our update document, which goes into a lot more detail in the principles. And then the other key focus is to talk about how manufacturers can actually demonstrate these principles. We're trying to push towards more of a, we, we call it secure by demand mantra, where their customers can actually start uh, demanding better security by asking the right questions. And we start that by laying out some of the key outcomes that customers can be looking for in this document. What are some of the questions that customers should be asking? And I think this is particularly relevant to our audience of federal agencies. Definitely. So the few of the, the items we lay out in the document, and of course, would encourage everyone listening to this to uh, go and take a look at that document. Some of the key uh, questions and um, aspects that we lay out there include uh, things like, has the company developed a secure by design roadmap, including a memory safety roadmap? Have they published that? Um, memory safety vulnerabilities, for those unfamiliar, are responsible for about two-thirds of vulnerabilities in unsafe languages, namely um, C and C++. And modern programming languages are built in a way that even if programmers make uh, these, these types of errors, which are inevitable, um, the programming languages protect against that. So just by changing a company's choice in the programming language they're using, they can eliminate a huge swath of vulnerabilities. 
Um, it's actions like these that we want to see companies talking about. How can they be working to eliminate entire classes of vulnerabilities? That's going to require some upfront investment, but we think in the long run it's worth it. So it's aspects like those or on the secure by default angle, our basic security features included um, at a baseline in the product versus things like single sign-on or um, security logging being an extra charge. We think that's important for tech manufacturers to really deliver a, a product that uh, doesn't need to be configured, especially to be secure, doesn't need to have extra add-ons to be secure, but rather secure out of the box. So those are some of the, the sorts of questions that we want customers to start asking. And, you know, I wanted to ask whether software manufacturers are starting to use this document and demonstrate any of these principles in a tangible way. And I think that is the first, still the first part of my question here. But then following up on what you said, are you, you starting to see customers start to ask some of these questions that are so critical to demanding security outcomes? I'd say yes to both. Um, on the manufacturer angle, we are certainly seeing many, including some of the, the most prominent uh, tech companies, start to align to our guidance, um, and that's visible through changes to their products. We, for instance, through a, a partnership with Microsoft, worked with them to bundle security logging that they previously had part of a premium plan into the, the baseline of their product so that both government and private sector customers could benefit from that. And that's just one of many examples of companies starting to really in incorporate secure by design and secure by default. We also did a pledge with companies in the education technology industry who are delivering products to schools, to, to teachers, to students um, around secure by design and got commitments from the largest companies in the space uh, to take specific actions like not charging extra for basic security features, like publishing a secure by design roadmap and really um, taking ownership of those customer security outcomes. So, and, and that's something that we want to further drive in other industries. So, so that's on the manufacturing angle, on the customer angle, uh, we are starting to see this as well. Um, and I, I think that'll take a little longer because there's a broader swath of customers that we have to reach. Um, but really, uh, and we want to kind of publish, we, we uh, for instance, put out a document aligned with the, the White House's K-12 Cybersecurity Summit geared towards school systems, how they can ask the right questions to their uh, vendors when they're purchasing products. Um, we, we want to follow this up with even more guidance to customers because we know um, they're, they're already under-resourced as is. So as much of a head start that we can give them to ask the right questions to their, their vendors, we think will be quite beneficial. And since we focused so much on customers, I want to hone in on the question of how federal agencies should be driving these practices forward. And do they face, you think, any unique challenges as a customer of these products? I, I think certainly, um, just as we're advocating private sector customers to drive the, the adoption of, of Secure by Design by asking the right questions of their vendors. Um, we, we can do the, the same leveraging the, the federal government's purchasing power. Um, and we saw a, a kickstart of this through President Biden's executive order back in 2021. CISA um, is in the process of finalizing the um, Secure Software Development Self-Attestation Form, 
And I think this is a really productive first step in driving some of these secure by design practices that we want from vendors. And I think we'll be able to really see what, what sort of impact this is making and then work to incorporate other actions of secure by design down the road. So, so I think that's one of the best ways we as the federal government can be driving some of what we're advocating for, uh, looking at asking the, the right questions of our vendors. Jack Cable, Senior Technical Advisor at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs 
are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming 
the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us 
to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.